Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So welcome everybody to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery here in lovely Cleveland, Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic. And today we're very excited to have Dr. Prashante Thota here. She's the medical director for the Esophageal Center. She's also the director for Barrett's Center of Excellence and the director for the Center of Swallowing and Motility Disorders. Prashante, thanks so much for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thank you very much, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Where'd you train? How did it come to the point that you came here to the Cleveland Clinic? So I'm born and brought up in India. So I got married at 24, and then I went to New York, New York, with my husband. And then I did my medicine residency in Albert Einstein. And then we moved to Cleveland for my gastroenterology fellowship. Thought we'd be here for a couple of years and move south for warmer climates. And that was in 2000. So we've been here in Cleveland Clinic since then. It's amazing how many times I hear people say they thought they were going to be here for a week or so or a year or so, and all of a sudden they're here for several years later. It's a great place to be in and to raise family and to work too. Fantastic. So today we're going to talk about something that's all over the media, GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. What is GERD? Gastroesophageal reflux disease is a very common gastrointestinal disease. Uh, It afflicts about 10 to 20 percent of the population. There is something called as normal physiological reflux. That is, there's short-lived episodes where the stomach contents come up into the esophagus, but they do not cause any damage. In some people, they can cause troublesome symptoms or complications like a stricture, scarring in the esophagus. They can cause batter's esophagus, and in some patients, they can also cause esophageal cancer. So there's a lot of people out there that may get heartburn occasionally. They take a Tums or Rolaids or whatever they take, but do all of those people necessarily have GERD? So there are two ways to define GERD. One is if it causes complications or like the scarring in the esophagus or if there are any ulcers or erosions in the esophagus or batter's esophagus. And in some patients, they have their symptoms which interfere with their daily activities. So if it causes those troublesome severity of the symptoms, then it is defined as GERD. So is there a timeline that people may have to have these kind of functional or or type of problems in order for it to be classified as GERD, or is a time not a portion of that? There is no time limit to define GERD itself, but for screening of batter's esophagus, usually the GERD symptoms for more than five years or having uh, the frequency more than once a week are the criteria used for screening for batter's esophagus. Yeah, and that's something we're going to get to a little later in the podcast. So first of all, what causes GERD? Gastroesophageal reflux disease is the reflux of the stomach contents into the esophagus. So it is a function of the lower esophageal sphincter. So if the lower esophageal sphincter is weak or if it is open for a longer periods of time, that can increase reflux. If there is any increase in the intraabdominal pressure, that is, if there abdominal obesity, that can increase the reflux. In smokers, there is decreased saliva that can cause damage from the gastric acid in the esophagus. Some patients have weak esophageal muscles, which we call as esophageal motility disorders. Those patients are also more prone for uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. So what are some of the symptoms that really classify GERD that maybe is different from just run-of-the-mill heartburn? The typical symptoms of GERD are heartburn as well as acid regurgitation. So if the frequency is more than once a week, then you're going more towards pathologic reflux. 
Uh, some patients also have reflux-associated chest pain, which almost feels like a heart attack. So those patients go through cardiac evaluations, and they're found to have evidence of GERD. Some patients also have difficulty with the swallowing or nausea, and there seems to be some weak association with uh, sinusitis, asthma, and then with certain other lung disorders such as pulmonary fibrosis. You talked a little bit before about GERD itself and uh, some of the risk factors that may be associated with GERD, but are, are there other ones? You mentioned obesity as being one that maybe obesity has a higher rate of prevalence of GERD. Are there any other uh, kind of patient characteristics that may predispose patients to GERD? Bad food habits, dietary habits, such as fatty foods, late meals, heavy meals, increased caffeine intake, smoking, they all exacerbate GERD. And certain medications such as calcium channel blockers, uh, antidepressants can also worsen GERD. Are there any steps that patients can take to prevent GERD? The main thing is to maintain a healthy lifestyle, maintaining ideal weight uh, within the normal weight range, avoiding smoking, avoiding those late night meals, avoiding heavy meals. Those are some of the things patients can do to treat their symptoms of GERD. How is GERD treated? In patients with mild symptoms, the two main things which seem to make a difference is for patients with nighttime symptoms, that is they wake up during sleep with acid reflux or so, sleeping with their head propped up or using a wedge pillow or something uh, called as a Metcline pillow seem to help with nighttime symptoms of GERD and also losing weight in obese patients also seem to help with GERD symptoms. After the dietary modifications and the lifestyle modifications, the next step is going on to um, uh, medications such as Zantac uh, or Tagamet to help with mild intermittent symptoms. For patients having more severe symptoms or more frequent symptoms, the treatment of choice is using proton pump inhibitors such as Prilosec, Nexium or so. And uh, very few patients with large hiatal hernias, they may, requ they may require surgery for treatment of their acid reflux disease. Let's talk a little bit about the medications for GERD quickly. You know, people out there, uh, obviously, they may take Tums or Rolaids. They may also take uh, a Maalox. And then they get into what you talked about before, the H2 blockers, and then finally the proton pump inhibitors. What's the kind of general differences between all of those type of medications? The most effective medications for treating GERD are proton pump inhibitors, um, and uh, they seem to relieve symptoms and decrease the acid exposure in up to 90% of patients or so. Then uh, they're also used in patients with complicated GERD, that is, if they have any ulcers in the esophagus from GERD, or if they have any strictures or scarring in the esophagus, or in patients with Barrett's esophagus. In patients with mild intermittent symptoms, medications such as um, uh, ranitidin or Tagamet can be used. And what these medications do is they suppress the acid pumps in the stomach, and the effect can last up to 10 hours or so. Medications such as Maalox, Mylanta, or Tums, they're very short-lived, and the duration is probably about four to six hours or so. Okay, so I'm somebody that uh, has some heartburn and reflux and some of the things that you were talking about earlier. I'm concerned that I have GERD and I go into the doctor. 
What can a patient expect during a doctor's visit uh, for GERD? And then what subsequent tests may they need to get depending on uh, what, what's going on with them? So the doctor will ask you uh, the severity of the GERD, your frequency of the symptoms, and also look at some risk factors. Are you a male, your age? Older people have more complicated GERD. Uh, white men have more complicated GERD. And patients with any family history of batter's esophagus or esophageal cancer, if they smoke, if there is any increased body mass index, especially increased visceral obesity, these are all the risk factors for batter's esophagus and complicated GERD. And if you have any alarm symptoms, that include if there is any difficulty with the swallowing, if there is any painful swallowing, any unexpected weight loss, if there is any low blood counts or any blood loss. If you have any of these features, uh, then the doctor may recommend an upper endoscopy. It's a camera test to look inside the esophagus to see if there is any damage in the esophagus from gastroesophageal reflux disease. What is manometry and pH studies and all of those things, and does everybody need them? Uh, uh, no, Scott. Um, usually the patients who need manometry or pH studies are those who does not respond to the proton pump inhibitor therapy or if there is any contemplation for anti-reflux surgery. So what a manometry entails is a tube with sensors is passed through the nose into the stomach and it has uh, sensors all along its length. And from that, we can see uh, how the esophagus is working, how your esophageal muscle is, how the lower esophageal sphincter is opening up and closing down. Uh, the test usually takes about 15 to 20 minutes. You're not sedated for this procedure. Uh, the pH study, we do it two different ways. One is we pass a very thin catheter, a thin wire through the nose, and it, is, and it is hooked up to a data receiver. You have it on for a day, and then you bring it back the next day. And the second way we do for extended monitoring is called as the Bravo test, where a probe is placed inside the esophagus during an endoscopy. Uh, there are no wires coming out of the body. And then there is a, uh, a receiver which senses this pH from this uh, wireless sensor within the esophagus. So these tests are typically done if the doctor is not certain if your symptoms are um, um, uh, related to GERD alone or before you go for surgery. So obviously yeah, you're an esophageal expert and you'd see a lot of these patients, but what is it or when do you decide this is somebody that's not responding to medications and then you're going to refer them on to surgery? And can you talk a little bit about maybe in a broad context uh, what the surgery is involved? So uh, usually when the patients are not responding to uh, twice a day proton pump inhibitors, uh, then we start doing the testing. Then if the esophageal manometry shows that the motility of the esophagus, if the esophageal muscle seems to be okay, and then the pH test is abnormal, that means it shows increased amount of acid exposure in the esophagus, uh, those are the patients we refer for surgeries. And second one is patients with large hiatal hernias. Those patients will continue to have symptoms in spite of taking medications, they will go for surgery. And the third group of patients who go for surgery are those with low, lower esophageal sphincter pressure. So they have the acid coming back up into the esophagus. They have food coming back up into the esophagus when they bend down or with any activities where there is any increase in the intraabdominal pressure. So the, these are the indications for surgery. Less than 1% of patients with acid reflux disease require surgery. 
The surgery is the typical procedure involved um, um, for acid reflux disease is what is called as nissen fundoplication, where they create a wrap, uh, where they wrap the upper part of the stomach around the lower part of the esophagus. In patients with poor esophageal motility, sometimes they may go for partial wraps. And recently, there are also some endoscopic treatments for uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. So one of the terms you mentioned a little bit earlier was Barrett's. Can you talk a little bit about what Barrett's esophagus is and kind of how does that all mix in with GERD? Barrett's esophagus is seen in about 10 to 15 percent of patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease. The patients do not have any different symptoms than any typical GERD population. Um, Batter's esophagus is a change in the lining of the esophagus, and then it is actually a response, an adaptive response to long-term acid reflux disease. So that batter's mucosa is more resistant to acid than the normal esophageal mucosa. But however, it has a uh, precancerous potential. So the way we make a diagnosis of Batter's esophagus is by doing an upper endoscopy. That's a camera test to look inside the esophagus. And then we do, do biopsies to look for uh, certain specific cells called as the gobbler cells or intestinal metaplasia to make a diagnosis of Batter's esophagus. There are certain risk factors for Batter's esophagus. Men are more prone for Batter's esophagus. Um, uh, older men, more than 50, uh, uh, white men, patients with large hiatal hernias, uh, patients with family history of esophageal cancer or batter's esophagus, smokers. These are all risk factors for batter's esophagus. So in patients with chronic GERD symptoms, with one or more of these risk factors, we do an upper endoscopy to screen for batter's esophagus. And uh, how is Barrett's treated? It depends on what we see on the endoscopy and the biopsies. It is the, the risk of cancer in Batter's esophagus depends on what is called as dysplasia or the precancerous changes. And in patients with non-dysplastic Batter's, that is about 95% of patients with Batter's esophagus, they're kept, they're kept under surveillance. So those patients go through endoscopy every three to five years or so. Then in patients with low-grade dysplasia, um, uh, and if the, especially if it seems to be persistent, those patients go for endoscopic eradication treatments where we burn the batter's tissue, and these are outpatient endoscopic procedures. In patients with high-grade dysplasia, as of 10 years ago, they were going for esophagectomy where the entire esophagus is removed and the stomach is brought up and hooked up to the upper esophagus in the neck. But recently, in the past decade, we started doing these endoscopic treatments called as endoscopic mucosal resection, as well as uh, radiofrequency ablation. These are all outpatient procedures, high success rate, more than 90% success rate, but they're multiple sessions, and once we treat them, they continue to be under surveillance. Is there any light therapy or something that I was reading about in terms of uh, the Barrett's, in terms of ablation? Is, are they still doing things like that? There used to be photodynamic therapy back in the early 2000s or so, but it is uh, associated with increased photosensitivity. Patients could not go out for up to four weeks after the procedure, and they used to have very high rates of scarring within the esophagus. Uh, up to 50 to 80% used to have strictures. So photodynamic therapy is abandoned right now, the standard treatment we are using for patients with batters with dysplasia is uh, radiofrequency ablation. 
So let's talk a little bit more about, are there any other complications uh, from gastroesophageal reflux disease besides uh, Barrett's? Um, can people go right to cancer or do they have to go through that? Or what, what is that link? It does. Patients with, uh, whether they have a diagnosis of Barrett's made or not, only about 10% of the patients with esophageal adenocarcinoma have a prior diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. So there was actually a study uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, uh, about 15 years back or so. Patients with weekly GER symptoms have a seven times higher risk of esophageal cancer than those without. So can patients progress to uh, uh, esophageal cancer without Barrett's? Possibly, yes. And so when you're dealing with somebody that has Barrett's, you mentioned that they might get screened at a different intervals or surveyed at different intervals. Is that a tough thing for patients to go through? I mean, when patients hear the word, oh my God, I'm going to get scoped and you're going to put a scope down my throat. Is that something that is pretty well tolerated? The, so this is a sedated endoscopy, so they do tolerate it, but you know, there is always that uh, fear of getting esophageal cancer, and then there is increase in the medical insurance cost too, associated with this diagnosis of Batter's esophagus. So that is there, and recently we have started looking at other alternatives to endoscopic surveillance, like passing a balloon through to get cells from the lower esophagus, and then there is a cytosponge, and then unsedated endoscopy, but the main thing is the acceptance rate is not so great as compared to an endoscopy with sedation. So in the next five to 10 years, we may be able to screen more patients for Batter's esophagus. And is there uh, something that if you have a large amount of gastroesophageal reflux disease, if it's pretty severe symptoms, does that affect the esophagus's ability to kind of squeeze food down? Do, will patients get strictures or does it affect their motility or is there any link to any of those things? Yes, the presence of acid itself in the esophagus, it leads to two things. One is it can lead to inflammation. That inflammation leads to erosions within the esophagus and subsequent scarring. So these are called as peptic strictures and then they can interfere with the ability to pass food down. The second thing is the presence of acid itself can weaken the esophageal muscle so it interferes with the food transportation from the mouth to the uh, mouth into the stomach. If you were to put on your Nostradamus prediction hat out there in about five to 10 years, what do you think is going to be the upcoming horizons in terms of, you mentioned a few of them, but what, what's next for GERD or next for Barrett's? What, what do you see this area of medicine going? So the next thing I would see is um, um, there will be more uh, screening methods uh, for Barrett's esophagus, that is screen more patients and survey less. So that is one thing where it is going to be more cost-effective for identifying the patients with esophageal cancer. So that is one. So I'm hoping we are actually involved with CASE uh, in doing a study looking at balloons. So we can do this in the office. The patient comes in, swallows a capsule with a string attached to it. Once it gets into the stomach, we inflate the balloon, collect the cells from the lower esophagus, and bring it out and look for um, Barrett's esophagus. So that, that's not the only thing. The other thing is what we are looking at is biomarkers. What are those patients at risk for progressing to esophageal adenocarcinoma? So that's an active area of investigation right now. So if we can identify the biomarkers in these patients, those patients can go for ablation treatments right away and then definitely reduce the risk of getting esophageal cancer in the future 
greatly. So those two are the things. And the third thing is right now the proton pump inhibitors, there seems to be association with different side effects such as uh, weak bones, dementia, heart disease, increased risk of C. diff infections and pneumonias. But there is no better medical alternative for proton pump inhibitors at this point of time. And eventually, um, uh, there is an endoscopic treatment, which seems to be showing a lot of promise, is the TIF procedure or the transoral incisionless fundoplication. The six-year data appears to be promising. Well, that is absolutely fantastic stuff. For those listeners of the podcast, they know I like to end up every one in terms of some quick hitters. So, uh, Prashante, to you, what's your favorite sport or activity? Uh, my favorite sport is cricket. Cricket, fantastic. <laughs> I'm from India. Yeah, well, one sport I'm still absolutely clueless in terms of I, I have the rules to that sport. but Similar to baseball. And then our favorite activity is cooking. That's fantastic. Our favorite meal? Uh, fish. What is the last book that you've read? Oh, boy. Uh, it's Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Okay, and best thing that you like about being or living here in Cleveland? Uh, Cleveland is a very nice place. You have all the four seasons. It's a nice-sized city. Uh, there's no traffic jams. So it's a good place to raise kids in. And then finally, just give our audience sum up in a few words about gastroesophageal reflexes. What's some take-home points? So gastroesophageal reflux disease is very common. There is uh, something called a silent reflux. Uh, the main way to avoid gastroesophageal reflux disease is to maintain a healthy lifestyle and a healthy weight. Well, we can't thank you enough. And to learn more about gastroesophageal reflux disease and Barrett's esophagus, please download our free swallowing disorders treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org slash swallowing disorders. That's clevelandclinic.org slash swallowing disorders. And to make an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic specialist, please call 216-444-7000. That's 216-444-7000. Thanks again for joining us on Butts and Guts. You're welcome. Thank you. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.